Welcome to the Road to Relaunch for Gothic Doctor, Part 4. That's right, we are back again to discuss what's going on with the relaunch for Gothic Doctor on Kickstarter. And I'm Jeff King, and with me is... Doug Lovendowski from Meltdown Games. Hi, everybody. That's right. We are back. We are back to discuss these uh, wonderful topics that you guys have been telling us that you've been enjoying. Uh, we've even got, we're at least going to touch on this time and maybe get into a little more depth in another episode, but we're going to touch on marketing, which was a suggestion from one of the listeners. So again, if you guys have things you want us to cover, make sure you get a hold of us. Podcast at All Us Geeks or info at meltdowngames.com. Either one of those will work. So tonight, Doug, uh, let's see. Part one, we talked about lessons learned. Part two, we talked about the action items from those lessons learned. Part three, we did Kickstarter videos and play testing. So tonight, what do you have on uh, topic for us this evening? So tonight, I was thinking about talking a little bit about the philosophy we're going to take with the early bird special kind of stuff, walking that fine line between encouraging people to jump in as soon as they see about the project and not wait for those last couple of days, but also not wanting to disincentivize people who come in later on and who you know just don't hear about it until later. Talk a little bit kind of more broadly about ways that I've been working to not burn myself out on this since Kickstarter expands to fit the space that you give it. And I've been working on this for about a year and a half now. So it could easily fit all that space. And then also talking a little bit about um, marketing, which was a request we had, and then go more into that at a, uh, at a later point. All right. You know, before we get into that, we didn't talk about this up front, but do we have an update on shipping? <laughs> That's what we've, <laughs> we've teased for like at least two episodes now. We're going to tease it again. No, oh, um, that's fine. <laughs> no, what we've decided to do is, uh, we're going to go with Ship Naked as a fulfillment service. It seems to be the, the most affordable service out there. And given their experience with it, uh, their ability to fulfill those quickly and also their ability to help keep international shipping costs down. We really think that's going to be the best approach. It is going to be a little bit more expensive than if we were to do it all ourselves. But if you factor in the amount of time and the need for know-how and the printer ink and all that stuff, certainly time-wise, it's worth it to farm that out, both in terms of the amount of time that we would have to put into it and the speed at which they'd be able to get it out. So that'll help us uh, get the, the goods out faster to the good people. Okay, there you go. There's your update on shipping. There it is. <laughs> All right. So which, uh, which of those topics do you want to cover first, Doug? Let's go theoretical first, the kind of putting all your eggs in one basket versus, uh, diversifying and kind of walking the fine line there between getting a new project every five minutes or, you know, focusing kind of single mindedly on one thing. Okay. So anybody who's been designing knows about that sort of need for balance. And everybody, I think, has their own sort of special sweet spot for, you know, how much time do I work on this one thing? How much time do I work on new projects? But one of the things that I've been hearing about time and time again from people is, you know, the sort of problem of the first project for any creator. I think we talked a little bit about this last time about Game Crafter and how people would come in and just say, you know, like, here's my project. It's perfect. And that's it because it's their first game ever. It's their masterpiece. It's going to be exactly what they want to do. And that's just not probably the healthiest approach to take with anything, you know, and I've certainly been guilty of that in the past, especially leading up to the last launch. It was, you know, Gothic Doctor really was it. And it wasn't until 
probably the May when we launched that I started thinking about, okay, well, what else can I design to keep my brain fresh, keep focused and, you know, keep what I'm really interested in, which is creating new games and, and that sort of thing. But then walking that fine line between that and bouncing from one thing to the next without ever finishing anything. So the way I kind of found balance there, and this is something I would encourage everyone who's listening to try at least once. I feel like I'm sort of an apostle for the 24-hour contest on uh, Board Game Geek. But if you guys aren't doing the 24-hour contest on Board Game Geek and you call yourself a designer, you should be doing the 24-hour contest on Board Game Geek because it's so challenging and so frantic and so much fun. But it's this nice little bite-sized piece where you can try out this mechanic or that mechanic and just a way to keep things moving and keep things new and fresh. Just a really great way to play around there within that sort of confined set of time where after you work on it for 24 hours, you're done. You got to submit it and that's it. But, you know, in the same way that writers, when they're working on a novel, have other short story projects going on. Or people who, you know, do community theater will be in a couple things all at once. It's, I think, a really good idea not to be too focused on one thing, just to keep yourself from getting burned out and hitting the point where you say, I just can't do this in terms of design anymore. I think it's really good to have those other outlets to have that sort of just raw explosion of creative design process with a timeline so that it's not, okay, I can work on this forever. It's, I can do this for a little bit and take my mind off of the other stuff and then come back to it with a fresh set of eyes. One thing about the revision process, you know, the longer you can stay away from something, the more critically you can look at it, I think. And if you're within one game forever, I think you wind up kind of skewing your perspective on it and not seeing as clearly all the stuff that is good about it and all the stuff that's that's bad about it. And I think those 24-hour contests or other design ideas or anything to try out other stuff is just a great way to refocus yourself when you come back to it, come back to it with a fresh set of eyes. I know you're a big proponent of the 24-hour contest. We've talked about them off and on. Oh, have I mentioned it before? No, 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 not at all. It's the first time I've heard of it. <laughs> but towards the end there, I think you really hit on something that I was going to kind of interject, and that's however you can bring in that extra bit of creativity or something. Because I, you know, I, I talk to a gambit of people. I talk to a, a ton of different people, and I could, off the top of my head, just names scrolling through my brain right now, I can think of a nice clear division line where it's like, yep, these people would be completely happy in that 24-hour game space, and these people would absolutely hate it because that's not how... That's not their process, right? And that's one of the things we talk about a lot and that I ask about a lot is, you know, what's your process for designing games if you have some? But I think the big takeaway you're trying to get at is not to be so, not to have those blinders on, not to have, be so focused in on just this one individual thing that it's all consuming to you. And it's one of those things where if you really don't want it to be, you can basically have a game that's never done. Right. I mean, it's very easy to just sit there and go, nope, nope, there's still more I can do <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and just keep going with it and never have a finished product. And then like, and like you said, I mean, and I think I forgot who I was talking to, but we had talked about either having the, the fact that playtesting and blind playtesting and having the extra set of eyes come in. Mm-hmm. And looking at things from a completely different perspective from you is always beneficial because in IT, we, I get the same thing. I can, I can sit there and look at code that I know because I wrote it 
but I right. can't see that error because I know what it should say, <laughs> not, not right. necessarily what's right in front of me while I'm staring at it. So I can either have somebody come look over my shoulder and point it out in two seconds, or I can walk away, go to lunch or whatever, come back and go, oh, you idiot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and see it right away. So yeah, getting a, that little bit of distance and or another perspective on something is always great. I do like that you kind of pointed to like authors and stuff because that's one of the things too that from an author's perspective, they're always attempting to write something, even if it's not what they're writing on, but just to kind of keep that mental mu muscle going, if you will. And a game designer can kind of be in that same spot. I, I just got done talking to to Ben and Matt from you know Fleet and Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback. They talked about one of their processes is if they don't have an idea, they just have a bunch of components in the middle of the table and they go, this is a cool component. Let's focus on that for a little while and kind of work around that. So it's just that mental muscle again. It's just flexing that creative skill outside of you sitting down and going, I have the absolute perfect idea and it's already mapped out in my head. Uh, that's great, but that's going to get you that one-time game right. <laughs> versus, you know what? I haven't done anything with a worker placement. I haven't, you know, and, and going some other route and trying to come up with something where you can get a whole slew of games out of, the, out of that process. Yeah. That's what I like about the 24 hour contest. It sometimes it's a theme, you know, like this month it's ninjas. And then sometimes it's a mechanic. One month it was dice. That's one of the games I'm, I'm happiest with that I came up with there. Cause I was like, dice. I never designed with dice. What the hell do I do with dice? Yeah, I, th I think it's good that way. And, and like you said, it's probably not for everybody to say, okay, I only have 24 hours to actually physically work on it. But if that's not your process and you're feeling burned out on a single project, then you, know, you can always go there for inspiration. Look at some of the old ones, see what jumps out at you and you know, give yourself however much time to kind of play around with it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You don't submit it, but it's good to keep those ideas going and keep the notebook. And you know, I have a notebook with like, 10, 15, 20, I don't even know how many like unfinished, never going to be finished game ideas where I'm like, well, what if there were a, what if you were building a strip mall that could move through time and space? This is real, actually. <laughs> and the more stores you built, the more chaotic it got about bouncing between time and space idea. But let me write about that for a page. Yeah, you know, just to keep, to not get stuck in one I'm doing this now and that's it. And I'm not doing anything until this is done. And I'm going to keep grinding at it, even though I'm starting to, you know, be frustrated with it or even like hate the process. It's just a way to, to keep yourself limber. I guess. Yeah. And there are a lot of different design contests out there too. Like, so you got the 24 hour, you know, I'm been actively involved in the, the game crafter one in the form that I sponsored one. And uh, yep. I, I always like to check those out as well because I mean, and, and that's one, like you said, you, this one, you got yourself 24 hours and you've got something new to work on all the time. And there, and there's a lot of, lot of them coming along. So you can get a lot of different ideas in a, a quick amount of space. Uh, where the game crafter one, if you're maybe not into that 24 hour period, you might have a month or two months or something like that to work on it or, you know, or, or more, but you have, you do have an end deadline. You do have some restrictions put in place up front, which I do kind of like. I mean, that's one of the things, again, that's going to set you apart from just having the one game 
that you've got in your head and this is it and this is the one I come out with versus, you know what, you're working with somebody and and they want you to do this, this and this or they want you to make X number of changes to your perfect game that you think is perfect in order for them to publish it. You've got to be able to kind of have that flexibility. So the contests I like from that aspect, it's like, okay, you've only got X number of dollars to spend. It has to be this theme. It has to play in this amount of time and stuff like that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and, and a lot of those contest winners have been extremely solid games that have gone on to either gone to regular publishers or very successful on Kickstarter as well. <laughs> yeah, Dig Down Dwarf did okay, I guess. Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> but even beyond that, I mean, you look at Mob Town that went to Fifth mm-hmm. Street Games. That was originally a contest winner. Uh, you got, you know, Dig Down Dwarf, which won our contest. And there's many more, and I'm, I'm blanking on them right now. But there are several of, of the winners from those type of contests, which, again, started with, all right, here's your limitations. Go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. I think the deduction one is running now until the end of May, I think. Could be wrong about that. But, yeah, and I think those are really great for people who want to put out a more polished product. Because obviously with a month or two to work on it, they're expecting more from it than 24 hours. You know, there it's right. a 24 hour contest. They're good with clip art and uh, public domain comic book images that, you know, you've cropped around and stuff. But yeah, so I, I would say whatever for any designers listening to this who have their one game, think about what your other games could be. You probably, your first game is probably not your masterpiece, unless that's the only game you do, in which case there you go. But well, there is a there's a lot to be said, and it gets said a lot in various spaces. But the general consensus is kind of don't go with your first game. Never, never attempt to publish your first game. Uh, and you know, take that with a grain of salt. Or I think it's more along the lines of that baby syndrome that we were talking about when we first started. It's that first game is your baby. No, you can do no wrong with that game. So you're not necessarily open to constructive feedback. You're not open to people that are interested in the game. If this, this, and this change, you're not open to a lot of that stuff. You're, if you decide to screw it all, I'm going on Kickstarter because this is the way the game's got to be made. That is another space where you're going to get potentially critical feedback. If people are going to lay down money, they're going to start giving you feedback one way or the other. Uh, And some people will just lay down the dollar to give you that feedback (laughs) and and get out later. But if you're not open to making those changes and making the polish, and if I've said it before, but if you're coming to, no, my my game has to be $80 because all of this awesomeness has to be contained in this game, you probably haven't actually designed a game you've put together a game that you and maybe your friends like and that's that's fine (laughs) but the actual design process is a lot of painful cutting and pasting and does this really does this really make sense can this be cut is this critical to the game until you get down to that just really rock solid game that doesn't have all that extra fluff that wasn't needed. Yeah, maybe you and your friends like, you know, having a secondary game of card throwing and then coming back, you know, maybe you like having the cones of Dunshire. (laughs) (laughs) Parks and Rec. I haven't gotten that far in it, but uh, (laughs) we were slogging through that first season, which is just like that first season was was so painful to watch. I will will give you that. Yeah, I think we have one episode, but we keep uh, switching over to Archer. So excellent. But yeah, it's just, it's in order to truthfully, in my mind, to say that you've designed something, you've got to be able to sit down with it and go, okay, 
what really stays and what can I cut? And, you know, it can't just be your baby. And I've said it several times, like everything that I've ever designed in my head is awesome until I get it to the table (laughs) and it's crap. And then luckily, and poor Megan, but luckily Megan's there to go help me go. Nope. Uh, uh-uh, this is, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And we finally get it down to a playable version. And I, and I know even at that point, I'm not done yet. There's no way I'm done. It's just playable. Now I got to go take it to people that are actually critical about their gameplay. <laughs> right. Since Gothic Doctor is actually the first game that John and I have done. I mean, I sort of, I guess it is really critical to, to have that sort of distance from it to say, you know, when we first designed it, it was very, very different than it is now. So. I guess in some ways it is a different game, sort of. It's, you know, a variation on what we started with. But being able to, to sit down and say, yes, this is not fun. You know, the first playtest we did of the game using note cards that were cut in half, I called over about 10 rounds in and said, this isn't fun. This is bad. This is a bad game and we need to, you know, go back and think about what we're doing because the treatments weren't balanced and it was long story. But there were just all sorts of problems with it that if, if we went in thinking, okay, it's perfect, now let's prove it, that would be one thing. But we went in saying, okay, let's see how it is. And we're willing to change it enough. You know, Eventually, we added action cards to keep things moving. And I'll be honest and give John all of the credit there. He was saying we need it, and I was saying we don't. Doctors do treatments. They don't take actions. What What is that? And they made the game just so much better. But that was something that we butted heads over for a little while, because neither one of us is stubborn at all. Uh, <laughs> Eventually, once we really thought critically about it, we, once I really thought critically about it, I agreed with him because he had already, he had already kind of thought about it and figured it out. So I can probably go back and let, if, if anybody goes back and listens to some interviews, you'll hear many, many people say, yeah, the first time I put this out, it was just not that good. And I think that's a legitimate thing to be able to say. And I think to be able to be that honest about what you throw down, again, everything in my head is, oh my God, there's explosions and fireworks and this is the best thing ever (laughs) because in your head, it plays perfect. But once you hit it on a table, and if you can legitimately go, you know what, this is not what was going on in my head, you can take that next step to say, okay, how do I make it get there? So I don't think there's anything wrong with being able to admit that, you know what, when I first threw this down, it it sucked. And I've, like I said, almost everything I do, my first draft come out, I look at it and just go, this is horrible. I don't know what I was thinking at the time. Okay, what can we do? <laughs> And and take it a whole different direction, maybe even, or scrap an idea and go on to an, another one. But you have to be able to be that honest with yourself. Yeah, I mean, most most authors spend you know so much time writing and revising, and, and the first thing that comes out isn't the final thing by any stretch. I I think the story goes that Fitzgerald worked on The Great Gatsby for ten years or something crazy like that, and that's how you get a masterpiece. You know, that's how you get something that's really wonderful at the end by being critical with it and spending the time with it, both grinding away at it, but really enjoying the process. So, All right. So what else do we got for a topic? We were also going to talk about early bird stuff. Yes. So, yeah. So we went back and forth about this because obviously the benefit of the early bird is that you want to get that initial momentum and you want people to, you want people to say, okay, I want to back this now rather than, well, let me see what stretch goals they hit and all that stuff. Because you want to keep the momentum going. As soon as people find out about it, you want them saying, yeah, I want to be a part. But at the same time, and this is something you and I talked about a little bit, you don't want to alienate people who 
find out about it on day seven and suddenly they can't get what somebody else was getting or now they're paying five bucks for those three cards because, you know, they missed out on the early bird or, 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 or. And I think there's a couple good ways to deal with that and a couple ways, I think, not to deal with that, that could really alienate people. I think on the, on the far end of the spectrum is you can only get this thing if you back early. You know, so here's this special card that you only the first hundred people can have. And after that, screw you. You know, you should have been there at the start. You know, that to me is just such a strange way to think about that. And I haven't seen it on many projects. It's been a while. There's been a, a whole tide change in uh, early birds and exclusivity recently that, yeah, you don't see th- especially that type of exclusivity very often anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I think the next step is the sort of price drop that you can get this for a little bit less if you back early. And I see the merits to that, but it also adds that additional level to the game that there's more of that analysis paralysis when people are looking at your choices, even if it's sold out, it's just the perception of that one more option, I think can be off putting to people where now instead of seven levels, you have eight levels or, or whatever, or some projects where it's, you know, early bird special one is $5 off and then early bird special two is $3 off and early bird special three is $1 off. And that's certainly a way to, to tier how much people want to get in early. But at the same time, it sort of, if you can sell it for that much, why would you be selling it for more? If you're thinking about Kickstarter as a way to make a profit on the game, then it makes more sense. Or you're saying, well, those early birds will help us get the momentum and then we'll, we'll take the loss or sell it at cost or whatever. That makes sense. But it, it's also that kind of, uh, I missed it kind of thing. And that, that's the big issue right now is there's, uh, there, again, the, the tide has kind of turned a bit on that. And where I sit is as a backer, I'm kind of neutral to it. I'm going to judge the project by what I get for what I have to pay, not what I get for what I could have paid. If I didn't get in on it, I didn't get on it. But if I think the base price is still solid for the game, I'm fine with that. But I completely see, and you know, I've even, like you said, you and I have talked about this, and I've kind of told you when we were talking about the ideas of it that for a project owner, I would say, don't do it. <laughs> so where myself as a backer, I'm kind of neutral to it because I've, I've seen it and I've seen it done. And, and again, my going into it is the whole value for what I'm getting kind of thing, not what I could have got it for. There is an entire, and I've been talking about this a lot lately with a lot of different people, but the whole mental marketing side of your project. And there is an, a, there is a set of backers that their mental marketing is going to be, Oh, well, I missed it. I miss, I miss the value. I miss the sale. I mean, you know, so now I just, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm upset. I missed the sale. I'm upset. I didn't find out about this right away, you know, or something like, or I'm upset that I'm being left out because I didn't find this right away. So there is that mental marketing that you got to watch out for. And I think that's where we're starting to get. It's a very good idea and for project owners to get away from the early bird idea. Now there's still some people that swear by them and, and that's fine. And again, as a backer, I'm neutral, but as somebody that is talking to other people and consulting other people about doing projects, my advice upfront is always, yeah, what else can we do? Cause let's stay away from exclusivity and early birds. Yeah. And one of the solutions I've seen to that, that we were thinking about doing was so early birds get this. And we were thinking about structuring it so that whoever backed on the first day or the first two days got 
something for free. And then everybody else had to pay a little bit for it, not $10 for three cards or any nonsense like that, but, you know, like a buck or two or three bucks or whatever to cover the costs of, of that printing. And that we decided not to do again because of that sort of perceived value issue. Yeah, that was one um, of the things we had kind of talked about and mm -hmm. back and forth a little bit on. Yeah. And so what we decided we're going to do is part of our stretch goals are going to involve voting. So the, the two ways we're going to set up stretch goals are the sort of standard funding stretch goals, where a lot of them will be set already. You know, we know that we need to make X more in order to print on this, you know, higher quality stock at this level and then more at this level and that kind of thing. And so those will be set. But one of the things we are doing is we're having some cards that are Kickstarter exclusive. So they're not going to be available elsewhere and allowing backers to vote on. So for the standard ones, it's going to be additional patients. So there are some, some characters from literature or from folklore or stuff like that, where we said, Oh, it would be really cool to have Krampus in here. Uh, cause John and I are big Krampus advocates, but you know, then we talked about it and we said, well, I mean, if we're doing a Christmas expansion, I guess, and it's not really literature based. So that kind of wound up being on the, the cutting room floor there or, uh, you know, the Red Death from Mask of the Red Death by Poe. That's cool, but we have some cooler ghosts in there. And so one of the things for the, the funding stretch goals is when we hit whatever stretch goal it is, and we haven't figured out all the printing costs yet. We're working with Ad Magic about that. But, you know, when we hit just make up a number here, two thousand dollars over our funding goal, then we add one more patient to the outpatient deck. And our backers who have backed to that point get to vote on what that is. So people who have committed to the project early and who are engaged with it that way get to have some say in that, get to have a voice in that, get to decide the course of how it's going. But then uh, people who come in later still have the chance when we hit those later stretch goals to, they say, I can't believe people didn't vote for uh, the Countess of Bath, uh, like actual historical vampire. Cool. And then they can vote on that. And I hope people wouldn't feel like, oh, crap, I missed out on, on my chance to, to make my voice heard. But it is also rewarding people who, who get involved early. And then for the other stretch goals, we're thinking about uh, social stretch goals, which is something you and I talked about, yep. too, where for shares on Facebook and shares on Twitter and also kind of toying around with the idea about thumbs on BoardGameGeek, for some aggregate of those, each right now are we're thinking 100, you know, each combined 100 will unlock a new action card. So we have a bunch of action cards that were in the game originally or, you know, ideas we had that either were we decided they were too abusive or, you know, they just weren't the best 11 that we could come up with for the set uh, that we took out. Those would be we get uh, 100 shares on Facebook, then backers again would have the chance to vote on, oh, that's a really cool idea for the action card. You know, one of them that we somebody gave us at one of the double exposure events in, in Morristown was what if you could change the clock around? And so we said, oh, yeah, spring forward, fall back. There we go. And so adding that in there so that when you draw that action card, you can decide whether or not you want to move the clock ahead one hour to make it harder for somebody to collect a set or move the clock back an hour to make it maybe easier for you or, or whatever. Or other cards that we just thought, well, we're not sure how that would play. Those, based on those social stretch goals, we're going to be looking at adding those permanently to the game. And since you always have the option in it of taking out any action cards you don't like, that really seems like a good way to go for that. And again, the people who get in early get to vote on those and say, oh, man, it would be really cool to be able to screw around with the clock. I want to vote on that. I want to get that. Whereas people who come in a little bit later, hopefully would still feel like they have a voice in it 
and hopefully wouldn't feel like they missed out massively by not hearing about it beforehand or, you know, not backing on, on day one or, or what have you. One of the big reasons that I've been kind of moving towards having people do some some form of social stretch goals is because it, I, I think in general, it's just a really nice way to be able to help your project out without asking your backers for additional money. Because if they're out there sharing and using their networks, it has the potential to pull in more money for you, but it's a way to help, you know, empower them and get the word out without going, Hey guys, you know, can you give me another 10 bucks? Can you not give me another $15 or something like that? So it gives them a very easy way to help the project and potentially draw in more people. But you get to reward those people that have given you the money for backing the project as well. <clears throat> so anything else we want to cover on the early bird exclusivity front? I think that just about covers it. I mean, it's again, it's that sort of fine, fine balance between you want to motivate people to get in at, at the start, but you also don't want people who come in later to feel, oh, you know, screw this game. I'm not backing it because I missed X. So I hope we found something that'll strike a balance between that. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Okay. And I will also say that I think above and beyond that, I think one of the biggest motivators you can do to get people on board with your project right away is kind of what we've been doing. But the, the community side, the uh, putting yourself out there, the sharing your project as soon as possible and empowering people to be able to give you the suggestions and stuff, which I know Doug and John are in the process of getting the Kickstarter preview together for people. So uh, sometime here in the near future, we'll be asking for feedback from individuals to make that even better than they've already been working on, which looks good so far from what I've seen. I kind of glanced it over. Thank you. But I think that goes a long way even even more. I mean, it's 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 nice to have those things involved, those, I guess, physical things in the project. But I think just having people on board, having people rooting for you, having people aware of who you are and, and your assistance in the community, because Doug, I see you all the time in, in answering questions and, and giving feedback. And I think that goes a long way towards getting that initial rush because and we've talked about it a little bit before but that's going to be one of those things where when you do get to that point where you're like hey i need feedback and then hey we've launched it's going to be oh i know doug yeah he helped me with this question and stuff i you know let me go check it out and let me back him so i think that goes a long way as well for your initial rush yeah and i think the plan is to launch at the very beginning of july possibly july 1st if all the pieces fall into place and so especially having that going into that holiday weekend where it's going to be a little a little drier, probably. Hopefully 4th of July becomes, you know, the, the official Kickstarter holiday with Gothic Doctor, but we'll see. And I think that actually kind of leads nicely into the other thing we were going to touch on, which is marketing. Right. And I have a tough time with this one. We were asked directly about it. Otherwise, I probably would have avoided the topic altogether, uh, <laughs> which... Uh, Maybe not the greatest idea to not think about marketing, but for me, it's about the way you think about marketing. We're still thinking about where we're going to advertise with and how we're going to do that. And some sites are more reasonable and some sites are more expensive and are the more expensive sites worth it and all that sort of stuff. Sort of what you were talking about before with being active in the community. I think if you're thinking about Kickstarter the way I think about Kickstarter, it's that kind of is your marketing. It's not, it isn't that I'm always trying to sell you something or ever trying to sell anybody anything at this point. I'm coming at it more of uh, looking at people I'm interacting with as my community rather than my consumers. And for me, that's really the only way I want to think about marketing. 
you know, like you said, if, if people who I gave advice to about, you know, their, their coffee truck look at Gothic Doctor when it's up there and say, oh, cool, yeah, I want to check that out, then cool. And if they see it and say, well, he was helpful, but I don't really like board games, you know, that's fine too. It, it, it's something where I'm happy to do it and it's not a writing down the names of everyone I ever helped, email them and say like, so remember that time I did this for you? Pay up, sucker. You know, that... <laughs> That kind of marketing is just so reptilian to me that, you know, I'm just not interested in being that guy. But, you know, part of marketing is just making people aware of it. That whole just no such thing as bad press thing. So I just have to create some sort of massive controversy about Gothic Doctor. The question is what? <laughs> but yeah, having your name out there, being involved in the community and going to cons. Oh my God. That, that I think is the number one best way to market the game. You have it out in public and you see it. And if you have a good looking prototype, once you're getting to that point, people walk by and they look at it and they say, Oh, let me, you know, let me check that out. And they sit down for a game or, you know, they, they take a, we were giving out bookmarks because of the theme. And so they take one of those and, you know, they, uh, they use that or they don't. And, um, you know, just marketing quietly, I think is kind of the way to do it. Well, you know, you, you touched on something there too that I, wouldn't mind expanding on a little bit just from the the fact that you know you, you've talked about going out to conventions and stuff and you've talked about taking gothic doctor out there and you talked about creating the bookmarks that you can give away which is great marketing but you know you and i have also had conversations around the best way for a sell sheet to look which you've mm-hmm. also used for marketing and stuff so i mean it, it as much as i know you are kind of like just let it be the organic thing. I mean, we've had conversations around some of the marketing aspects and, and maybe that's one of the reasons why you and I have as many conversations as we do because so <laughs> I, it's not my baby. So I can kind of be the guy that's like, well, what are you doing about this? <laughs> right. I think you guys have always done a solid job in thinking about it when you need to think about it and getting feedback and opinions on the best way to kind of handle it if you're unsure. And again, you know, I think we, we like completely redesigned your cell sheet, if I remember right. From, yeah, from totally, totally, totally redesigned it. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the way it looks. Actually, I'll jot myself down a note. I'll send you a copy of it in PDF. And then if people want to check it out as a model for what they might be doing, they can do that because yeah, I'm, I'm real happy with that, how that turned out. I wasn't even thinking about the cell sheet as a marketing, which it's ridiculous. Yeah, well, yeah, to me, and I guess that popped in my head because I know you, you know, like you said, you had the bookmark that you can give away, but even above and beyond, because I know at the time you were kind of using the sell sheet for publishers potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was at, for unpub. You were yeah. at an unpub event, right? So, yeah. but that's also something, especially if you, I think we, did we design it like a quarter sheet or did you do a the, full uh, yeah, the cell sheet was at eight and a half by 11. Okay. But I mean, that's still something like if you're at a convention and yeah, they can take the bookmark, but the cell sheet does a lot towards giving the visual and just a very quick, very just couple seconds of here's all the information you need to know kind of thing. And it's not a bad thing to have around. And if we could actually get that down to a quarter sheet, that'd be awesome too for actually <laughs> doing it conventions and stuff. Yeah. But it's, it, yeah, it's just one more piece that you've used along the way to let people be aware of Gothic Doctor and what's going on with it. And I think it was an excellent thing that you guys have done. And I love the fact that, you know, you are getting out there into the cons and stuff and demoing it because that is one of the nice ways. I mean, word of mouth is going to go a lot farther for, hey, you know, I played this great game. 
And let me tell you about it. If, if you've got some random person doing that, then you're one step above. Yeah. And the other thing about marketing is I would say, you know, I haven't been able to go to as many cons as I would like with my teaching schedule. It's, you know, I'm only given so many personal days, uh, three actually. And, you know, this year I needed to use one for a wedding. You guys don't care. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there are only so many cons I can get to. And so part of what's been amazing about this community is people willing to help out when I can, when I can't be somewhere that they can, and then obviously vice versa. So like for PAX East, I would have loved to have gone to that, but it just wasn't going to work out. So Ivan Turner from Nine Kingdoms, we were at a tabletop day together and he said, so I'm going to take this deck up to PAX, right? I said, sure, by all means. And so, you know, if you have friends who are going to be going to the con anyway, have them show it off. My buddy Charlie from Sizzlemoth Games is going to have Gothic Doctor up at Origins. He's going to be showing that off because that everywhere west of Pennsylvania is done with school by early uh, early June. <laughs> and the entire eastern seaboard is like, you know what? Let's have you go through basically all of June. And so that's really a, a crazy, crazy time. And I wish I could go out to Columbus to be there, but I can't. And he offered to. And so that, yeah, marketing and making sure that you're getting it to as many cons as possible, having as much of a con presence as you can. If the game is strong by showing it off, you're marketing it. So that, and also one thing I would say is the quality of the art that, that we got from our artist, Jeff Drylowitz, is so good that we made eight and a half by 11 prints of some of that stuff to put up at cons. And that has brought people over too, because they look at the, I mean, one of my favorite, favorite illustrations by him is the bite victim, which I think is up on board game geek. If anyone wants to check it out. And you know, the, this woman who has these two puncture marks in her neck and the necrosis is just spreading slowly from them. And she has this look of just absolute terror in her face. People seeing that from across the room and going, what the hell is that? And coming over, you know, I would say at Unpub, a good handful of people came over and were looking at the art and said, what, what game is this for? I want to check that out. So having, I think, as good quality art and uh, as polished a product as possible at those cons is really good marketing, too. Yeah, and I think it's it's one of those things, especially now, especially in the current world of Kickstarter. Maybe you don't have all of the art done, and that's fine, but put it in your budget to get anywhere from two to five good pieces done and and have those available and to be able to use, like you said, for, you did it for the marketing aspect at, at cons and stuff, but even on your Kickstarter, it's... I, you know, we, I've said it several times and I've talked to several people that have been involved in Kickstarter from day one to today. And it's just, it's not the same anymore. It's not the, the days of being able to throw up a scribbled sheet of your plan for your game and say, this is what I want you to hopefully help me fund. And, uh, I don't know who's going to do the art. I don't know, you know, any of that. those days are kind of gone. Um, yeah. So you don't have to have, like I said, you don't have to have 100% of the art, but as much of it as you can is preferable. And uh, if you really can't afford all of it or 70% of it, I mean, again, two to five really solid pieces that you think will, will work out really well for the game to show off what the game is about, I would budget that in uh, if at all possible. Yeah, and I would say getting as many pieces of art done as possible. You know, we have... We're relatively art light for the for this game. I think we have about fifty, yeah, about fifty illustrations that we've had done so far, and so we were able to out of pocket that. Well, out of pocket, and we also sold some stuff to our friends for the second go round. 
because I think I think the more art you have, the more complete your game is. The number one most important thing, and we didn't have this the first time, and that was bad, is the box. Having that done and rendered, that is part of the marketing thing that tells people this product is finished. We've all had the experience with the Kickstarter where we think it's more done than it actually is based on what they say, and then it's okay, we'll start we'll start, you know, finishing this art and Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And people have been burned in the past by that. And so I think the longer we go on, the more wary people are going to be of. Especially, I think now the expectation is that you have as much of it done as humanly possible ahead of time. Because a lot of companies who are coming along and using Kickstarter are able to do that. Somebody like Crash Games, who consistently puts out really great looking Kickstarters and really great products, they're able to do the upfront and have that art good and ready to go and showing off that just beautiful stuff for uh, Council of Verona that just, you know, you look at it and you go, God, I got to have that. I think having those I've got to have it kind of illustrations is just great marketing. Yeah. I mean, you, the first thing that's going to, that pulls in most people is the visual. I mean, they, they see what you're working on. They see the, uh, you know, general sense of the theme. And then that's just like, Oh, Oh, like you said, you know, people seeing it at cons going, Oh, what's that art from? What's the game about? Yeah. You know, and it wasn't, Oh, I read this. I, I read your two page bio on, on this game. Right. And now I'm interested. It's, Oh my God, that art is awesome. Uh, what's it for? Tell me more about it. Okay. You've got me. Let me, let me play it, you know, kind right. of thing. So, I mean, your, your art is going to set the tone a lot of times for your game. Yeah. It isn't going to be that everybody sees, Oh, a card game for two to four players. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, even some people will, but I mean, even, even just describing the theme or the, the genre or setting, I mean, there, there are those people that that is kind of what they're looking for, but the majority of people will go, oh, all right. And you know, and, and you could break down any game and make it sound awesome or terrible, mm-hmm. <laughs> just depending on your, where you do your tone and how you describe anything or, oh yeah, I've played that game. Well, no, you really haven't kind of thing. You know what I right. mean? It can be generic, but once you start getting into, again, the art kind of helps set that tone and everything. And, and that kind of starts getting that more of that emotional pull from people, I think is when they see that and suddenly it's no longer just all all headspace well you know i've played a worker placement before and you know that kind of thing it's like oh that's that's absolutely gorgeous that's you know i want to be in that space environment i want to be in that you know i want to immerse myself in in that realm kind of thing (laughs) that that all comes from having decent art All right. So you said that you guys are still kind of doing the planning side of where you think you're going to actually like spend money for advertising, for marketing. Right. So that's something that maybe we will talk about in the future once you guys have solidified what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else you want to make sure we cover? I think we're, we're getting close there. So yeah, I think, I think that's about everything. I'm sure I'm forgetting stuff in marketing because that's just, you know, not where my head's at like we talked about. But well, and, and like we said, I mean, we're, we got the suggestion. We had kind of talked back and forth about maybe holding off another month to talk about it when there might be some more uh, solidification in place. But, uh, we wanted to at least touch on it here. So it is going to be kind of something that we circle back around to once John and Doug have had more time to put the overall plan in place. And these are just kind of thoughts and conversations that we've had along the way 
to get to this point and to be thinking of uh, the edges of marketing, if you will. And, and again, I'll, I'll, one of the things like Doug said is uh, some of the marketing that he's actually done, he doesn't consider marketing. He doesn't think of marketing. So it took us having this conversation to kind of put it in the marketing <laughs> right. slot because really he is out there building the community side of things and, and just being a part of the community, which is a bunch of marketing in itself, but you shouldn't approach it like that. And, and I think Doug pointed that out really well. It's, you know, he's out there to help other people and to give, you know, to participate in the conversations, to give opinions and feedback. And at the end of the day, come July, uh, there's going to be a lot of people that remember that. But right now, Doug's in the moment of this person needs assistance. This person is asking a question. This person has this. Uh, let me add my topic to the conversation. And he's just in there, just participating in the community right now. All right. Well, then I guess that will probably do us for part four of the road to relaunch for Gothic Doctor. Part five will be coming to you before you know it. And uh, we don't know what we're covering yet. We'll have that conversation. Usually Doug and I have that conversation after we record. And and again, if you have topics you want us to cover, like somebody uh, recommended marketing, podcast at allusgeeks.com or info at meltdowngames.com. Just let us know the topics that you want to hear about the Kickstarter process and leading up to the Kickstarter process, be it either a relaunch like this is going to be or just in general dealing with the Kickstarter process. Let us know. We will gladly cover them. We will put some uh, thought process around it and have some conversation around it, and we'll bring it into the Road to Relaunch episodes. So thanks for hanging out with us. It's been a pleasure again. I hope you've enjoyed this one like you've told us you've enjoyed the other ones. And we will be back soon.